You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. He's the author of seven highly regarded novels and three collections of short stories, a memoir and essays, mostly on Australian and Asian culture. He was president of the International Penn Sydney Centre from 2002 to 2005 and general editor of the Macquarie Penn Anthology of Australian Literature in 2009. It's published. Visiting chair of the Australian Studies at Harvard University between 2009 and 2010. Professor Jost and teaches creative writing at the University of Adelaide, um, where he's a member of the J.M. Kurtzi Centre for Creative Practice. Linda is um, also a, a novelist and a, a author of, in fact, 11 books, seven fiction and four non-fiction. She's also the author of numerous uh, published short stories and essays, including the quarterly essay found in translation in Praise of a Plural World, which you may remember was out last year. Very, very good. Um, she's also written for the theatre and is a literary film and translator and uh, from Chinese and I imagine... You name it, I suspect, and the book probably has done it. So, <laughs> on that further ado, you do get rather informal introductions here at Asia Book Group. I'll hand you over. Thank you so much, Sally. Um, I'm so happy to be here with Nick, my very old friend. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Speaking to the mic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm going to discipline him here. Um, <laughs> Nick um, and I met in the 1980s, which was such an exciting time in China. And um, Nick was cultural counsellor. And one of the things that I remember, we, we went through a lot together. We went, we were actually in Shanghai on the night that the, that the troops began firing on the demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. And we, we watched the TV in our hotel room with um, and then just had to listen to it because they, the, the government cut the broadcast. But we, we um, had these uh, um, people who were the room service bringing up endless things of beer, and they would, they would love to come up and, and, and bring us our beer because they could watch the TV and find out what was going on. And we flew back to Beijing the next day and had to wait in the airport. And, and they sent a military attaché packing a gun to pick us up. It was all, so we've been through a lot. <laughs> we have a lot of common friends as well. Um, so it's really, really fantastic to be here. And it's interesting because I think both of us have just taken some of those experiences which were so intense and written about them. Can you just read first from page to on um, what what is Bob okay. Just that short paragraph, if you don't mind. But but you were going to say yeah. No, just before we jump into that, just to thank you to Sally first of all for um, having us here tonight. Yeah, it's um, great. To be here. I was here last year for a rather solemn occasion um, and had dinner with um, with Linda and Jeremy Barme, who's at the back, and we we're talking about this book. And Jeremy said, "Well, it'd be great to." do something with that. Um, and so that all came together and here we are tonight. And we kind of timed it for during the Chinese New Year um, holiday period. It's really the only time all the three of us could actually be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all worked out very well. And um, who better than Linda to, so who, who agreed that night back then and here we are. So thank you, Linda. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, so the book's called, yeah, the book's called Bapo, and um, a friend of ours, a very old friend of ours, Nancy Berliner, who's an expert in, um, in many things but Chinese folk art, um, we both were there when she kind of, didn't, didn't we kind of hear this at the same time? She'd found these amazing weird paintings yeah. in the market. Yeah. And she did research uh, because they were trompe d'oeil paintings of these, uh, as if people had patched together bits and pieces of things. And it was called Bapo. And she was really, she wrote really interesting things about it and yeah. documented it. Yeah. So you've called this collection Bapo. Yeah, and so that, that idea has stayed with me ever since then. Um, what idea exactly? The idea of Bapo, which literally, Ba means eight, number, number eight, and Po means broken or, or worn 
Um, it's a very obscure term, actually. I mean, no one knows what it means. No one in China has ever heard of it, actually. But Nancy Berliner has written well about it. Um, it refers to an artistic practice where an artist paints a set of fragments, torn pieces of paper, found objects, burnt things, um, but creating an illusion of those things. So it's an illusionistic technique and assembling them into something which becomes quite beautiful um, as, as an image. And yes, there's one on the cover painted on, on a fan. Um, and Nancy has written about this. I quote her in the introduction to the book. Um, and this is the paragraph that um, Linda is, is pointing at. Um, Bapur is an aesthetic. Bapur is an aesthetic of illusion and salvage, of creative retrieval from the destructions of grand historical progress. As a kind of writer's Bapur, this book is an assemblage of stories that are inflected by China, some directly in content, others indirectly. Some of the pieces are more like pulled threads from the fabric that extends between China and Australia and includes the rest of the world in ways that have changed beyond measure since I first went to China in the early 1980s. It's a presence that is never entirely complete or exhaustible. Um, we're going to go into um, some of the things about this attraction to China, but can I just first ask briefly, why that last thing you say that it's a presence that's never entirely complete or exhaustible can you try to i mean i feel it too but yeah. why <laughs> is that why is that why china i mean it's an impossible question to answer um i mean it's on a, on a kind of literal level it's partly because you know china is so enormous and the history is so long the culture is so rich things are so complicated etc etc um but it's also that um well, for me, having been immersed in it, it's impossible ever to get out of it entirely, even living in Australia, even doing completely different things. Um, some sort of um, Chinese influence is, is often there. And as a writer, I'm very interested in that, actually, the way um, even an aesthetic idea from another culture can be somehow carried across. Um, and one of the things about the book is it is a collection of, of shortish pieces, um, short stories, really. Though in formal terms, they differ quite a lot. Some are more like fully formed, complicated stories. Others are more like sketches or fragments. And they're not all set in China at all. Um, many of them are, but some of them are not. Um, and Italy and Italy, Australia. Australia, yeah. And yet for me as a writer, they all seem connected in various ways. Um, are, you, are you interested in more why it is never entirely complete? Um, or well, ever it's entirely just such an interesting sentence, but we can, we can come back to that unless yeah. you have... Um, I mean, I'm just interested. No. It was a very interesting thought. Mm. Um, now, I'm, I actually will jump to another thing about your, the fixation on China. And this comes from a story appropriately titled Loving China. And um, it talks about um, a group of, of, of people um, who are in, in China anyway. Um, it says here, there's just this one line, knowing China, this is about Kara and Claude, knowing China, it was more intense than knowing themselves. And for that, they were prepared to re let the rest of their lives go. Mm. Would you talk about that a little yes, bit? What page is that on? 54, <laughs> I'm sorry. 54, yeah. Um. China was their host now. Yeah, it's... So this is a question about having China in your relationship, really. Um, which is a kind of a strange way to put it. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's been um, quite a real thing. And first of all, if you 
have been heavily involved with China or with any other foreign country for that matter, but China's maybe a more extreme case, and you come back, um, people are not that interested. You know, there's a limit to the capacity you have to share it with anyone. And you can share sort of bits and pieces, but you can never really share it. Um, and that can be isolating. Um, and so if you find someone who you can share it with, that's a very powerful bond. But is it enough? Um, is it enough to build a relationship on that you both have this shared experience? Um, well, for me it has been um, in the case of China, partly because it is so inexhaustible and never quite lets you go. So it's always going to be there um, and you have to kind of learn to to manage it in somehow. Um, but of course that adds intensity as well because it's like a shared secret, secret. you're kind of insiders and yet in something. Insiders, um, and yet there's that thing about I'd rather not know myself. So in a way it's a place of escaping knowing there's, yourself for yes, a lot of people. There's that too, yeah. Um, and then you have in on uh, page 125, in the story called um, Beautiful Island, um, there's this, um, there's a gay guy and he's um, in a club and um, it's interesting, would you read that paragraph that begins local boys? Yeah. Local boys dance cha-cha in formation in the dark sea of the basement club. The music is a catchy boy-girl duet. People slip by each other in the blackness, avoiding contact, almost all Chinese. Crowding excitedly down there, they breathe the hot, smoky air. He relaxes into a second, a third local beer, smiling when spoken to, taking his turn to join the rippling throng. One, two, cha-cha-cha. He recognises colourful identities perched on stools or pressed like oysters to the wall. No fish out of water, he enjoys the status of his strangeness. He is at home in Chinese. This sentence seemed to me kind of em emblematic of so much of the, the stories that deal with both foreigners and Chinese, people who are outsiders but more at home on the outside. Mm. Um, he enjoys the status of his strangeness. And again, it's a sense that the foreigner can be whoever he wants to be yeah. and is more comfortable being that. Yeah stranger yeah is that something that you identify with it, it must be um, <laughs> <laughs> not that these stories are autobiographical exactly but you know you, you draw on sensations you've had and um, it's partly the one of just being lost in a crowd um, but also of being um, lost in quite a strange crowd, you know, where your strangeness, you know, as, as an outsider, um, somehow folds in with um, the general atmospherics. Um, the way um, we use travel, we use other languages to become other selves, take on other identities, um, sometimes playfully, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. And it can be very addictive and you can kind of go all the way or you can pull back um, is, is also part of that. Is it a kind of a play acting? Well, there's definitely that element in it. Um, but I don't think it's a play acting that the actor is always in control of because it's not a stage, it's not a script. And, you know, the, the people all around you will be kind of playing with you and will be viewing you in certain ways and all of that. There's a lot also about the kind of knowing and the um, who knows what and who knows who knows what. Mm. And so this then, as a, as a general theme, folds into, you know, the whole larger question of Australia's relationship with China and how we attempt to interpret China, how we cope with it. Um, China is here in Australia. Do we do we understand that? All all of those larger things. Well, you have um, that story, Diamond Dog, mm. and that's a story uh, in which a Chinese uh, couple lives um, uh, on an island. Um, the man is a painter. Um, he resembles a certain painter I know. Um, he has a daughter who 
is kind of shunned by the local people until she's befriended by um, a, a boy. And mm -hmm. what's very interesting is the artist in that story says, um, or you say of the artist, his art itself was a crossing. And you're very interested in the idea of crossing, the rose indeed. crossing yeah. being one of your I novels. Indeed, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because basically in that story we see racism being conquered partly through, in a really weird way, cross-dressing, because the two kids put on each other's clothes at one point. Yeah. And also by the fact that, well, by the fact that she rescues the fa the other family's dog from the mouths of a python. But <laughs> <laughs> That'll bond people. That's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to true stories in a moment. Want to talk about crossing? Yeah. Well, crossing, I think, is... Um, it's there in almost all my work, one way or another. Um, and, you know, a, a fancy word for that might be um, cultural translation um, or, or even cultural exchange. But crossing is a, a kind of a looser word where things are transferred, cross-pollination occurs, new things happen, or things are seen in, in new ways. Um, and that's where that artist character is, um, you know, is intriguing to me and inspiring in a way because he's a displaced person who had a certain sort of skill set um, back in China and comes to Australia and that skill set doesn't quite match and he adapts, um, he becomes a portrait painter, he becomes successful, but he um, and other artists like him are also responding to the environment they're in, the you know, the natural landscape, um, the strangeness, to get back to that word, of life in this um, small Australian coastal town. Um, and these, these crossings occur, and it's transgenerational as well. I mean, the, the, the experience of one generation will be passed on, but it will be transmuted um, in the next generation. And yet what's quite interesting um, in this story or in these stories is that um, I think that's the only one where you have a physical crossing of a Chinese into Australia, isn't it? Diamond Dog. Yeah, where well, yeah. she puts on a kind of Shane Warne yeah. outfit. Yeah, she puts on a little, she cricket, puts on a little football boy thing. Been wearing, yeah. But what's really interesting is that the foreigners in this novel tend to revel in their strangeness. And yet this family, um, the, the, the good journey that they're making, it's not to an enjoyment of strangeness, it's to an acceptance. So yes. the two sides are going in, they cross in different ways. Different directions. Would you say that's... Yeah, well, that's a very, that's a good point. Mm. Why? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Because there's that other story, um, it's called... Um, Kong, a fossil, Kong fossil, something like that, yeah. is about a journey that doesn't quite happen or it doesn't really go anywhere. What, just um, give us a little uh, summary of that one. Um, it's a long time since I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, someone who comes to, uh, to Australia from China around the time of Tiananmen. Another of, artist. A refugee who doesn't quite make it and ends up working in Chinatown and gets stuck in Chinatown and then grows old, um, family connections fade away and ends up um, in a kind of isolation. And again, I mean, if the, if the, if the, the other story, the Python story, mm -hmm. is the happy ending, this is the unhappy ending because he's not reveling in his strangeness. Do you know what I mean? They're no. still on the same, no, they're still crossing in that way and then the foreigners crossing into China are crossing yeah. into an enjoyment of the yeah. strangeness. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, to talk about real stories for a moment, would you mind reading um, that first paragraph of Marriage Bonds? What page is that? 145. Sorry, I, didn't, I, I told him he was going to have to read things that I was going to point out, but he didn't know which ones. Okay. <laughs> uh, it is surely a mistake not to use your life for art yet I have always held back. Is art nothing more than an encoding, subject to the same contingencies as experience itself? Or, to reverse the logic, 
does experience contain within itself the formal qualities and abstractions of art? Does it matter which instance of cruelty I recount for you, since all of them incarnate the same pattern? The masochist finds the sadist every time. Perhaps you will say that what matters is the detail, the gender, for example, of those concerned. Even that I refute. So is this a refutation of the notion that you kind of transcribe life in art? It's a bit more complex than yes, that, but yes. um, I'd like you to. Well, for me, um, these are stories. All of them are stories, and I am a story writer. And in a certain sense, I cannot write a true sentence to save myself, because whenever the pen hits the paper, it becomes something turned into fiction. Um, in that process, of course, as the fiction develops, I just pull on whatever is around me. Um, people, my experience, um, but what what drives that is really the, the fiction-making process. So yes, for me, um, it's not about transcribing life. Um, I don't do that. I don't really know how to do it, actually. Um, but it's about creating something that seems quite lifelike, which is very important. You know, you want people even to say, oh yes, well, I know that person, you know, which they, which they often do. Um, or that's you, isn't it? Um, which you can say yes or no to, as, as you please. Um, but yes, there's a, there's a process of transformation going on, again, a crossing, if you like, from the raw material into something I think of as art, but I don't want to make art into a kind of fancy term. It just means that it's, a, it's carefully constructed and there are gaps that are left that may be enigmatic or suggestive, um, but it, it has a kind of completeness in a sense too. Um, but yeah, this is tricky stuff. There, I mean, there's a, a wonderful story by Helen Garner called The Life of Art. It's only two pages long, but it's a masterpiece. What did, I don't um, know this one. It's called The Life of Art. And it's really about about that what I was reading reading in that paragraph. Um, what she's interested in is sometimes the the dictates of art may cross over into life, and you want to kind of have the ending you think is the appropriate ending, and that doesn't always happen. Mm. Um, and yet, at the same time, there's so many. I, I'm reading some of these characters, and the details of the characters, you know are really, you know, the size of the hips, um, the, you know, you can go, okay, that person was in that particular position at that time, and that other person was too, and they both were physically like what you're describing, and the husbands were like what you were describing. Yeah. So, how do you think about those things? I mean, in some ways, it's a you know, for those who have the cleft, it's a bit of a Romana cleft. There's so many of these stories where I could say um, this, even though there'll be things that fictionally go off, mm. the, you know, to in a different direction, but I would say, ah, uh, this is, you know, Guanwei, or this is so-and-so, yeah. or this yeah. is so-and-so. Yeah. So, well, you're, you're an extremely privileged reader in this situation, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. Do you think I should publish the class for general? <laughs> uh, would people be interested in, in that? You know, so would what? you be interested um, in the class, <laughs> to the Romana class? Yes, they're nodding. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, no, people always are, that's the thing. You know. um, I think, I mean, it is a curious thing, um, being a writer now, we are not allowed to write about real people. Um, or there are various constraints around doing that. I mean, Julia Gillard just got into trouble with Nick Xenophon for you know a one-sentence thing about something that happened decades ago. You know, which she'd obviously heard as hearsay and had believed. It was about ballot um, stuffing, and it was about in university politics when um, um, I think in the book it said that he had been guilty of ballot stuffing, but it, in fact it was some of his supporters, and he didn't know about it, or something, something like, like that. that. So it was, yeah. you know. 
Yeah. And the genie's out of the bottle, so yeah. it's, um, yeah, who, who does care really, but he got some money out of it. Um, and he obviously cares about well, also, also it's reputation. Yeah, reputation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, as, as a writer, we, we can't write about real people um, in the way we might want to um, for, for moral reasons and for legal reasons. That means that there are how many wonderful stories that we can't tell. Okay, so that's unfortunate. Um, so for me, I'm very conscious of that. Um, and so I, I work around things. And as I was trying to say before, it's, it's the story that starts it. You know, there's some particular story. And um, over the years, I've become a very slow worker, actually. I think, oh, that's a great story. And in the old days, I would have just sat down and written it the next week. But now I just sit on it and sit on it. Years pass. And I think, well, that is a good story. I want to tell that. And by the time I get to that point, wherever it came from is, has gone. It's, it's my story in my head, and I will try to write that down. Um, so, yeah. So nobody's going to be able to sue you? Well, I hope. <laughs> Successfully. <laughs> How long has the book been out? No. <laughs> um, that's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, to get back a little bit to, um, how much time do we have? Oh, great. Okay. Um, let you relax a little bit. Um, Let's get back to some of the details of China, which are so... Uh, one of them that sent me right back in time um, is one where somebody is trying to make a phone call. And it's on page 68. And it's really funny. And I, I used to be a journalist um, in China. I was working for Asia Week magazine. And I remember having to bicycle to the... Um, communications, what was it called, the telecommunications uh, office, what was it? Yes, that's it. And um, that's it, the long distance building. And um, <laughs> I, had to, I had to bicycle all the way up uh, Chang'an Avenue and then go into this building and re register, fill out a little form, get a number and wait for my opportunity to go to one of the few booths where you could actually make uh, an, uh, an international uh, long-distance call. You also had to go there for a lot of the calls between cities. It was it was one of those things, and you sent your, telegra your telegrams from there and everything else. But I remember spending so much time there, you know, in this queue, waiting to make a phone call overseas. And I laughed when I read that paragraph, because the other thing about it was, um, as I was a correspondent for this, and, and I'm sure you were in the same position, when you're working and you have to keep all your receipts and stuff, you end up, like at the end of a day, you end up with this stack of tissue paper, thin, little things, receipts, and it was extraordinary, the amount of paper that would be produced in the course of any kind of transaction to buy an airplane ticket. You went to the CAAC office, and there were about five windows that you had to visit in a particular order to buy a plane ticket. And then you had to come back and go to another three windows. Um, and you know you had to pay one person, take the receipt to the next person. It was quite something. I don't think people today appreciate that. And I, I would love you to read that. And have you got over that? When you're in China now, do you still have a sense that it's going to be very hard to do this thing I want to do? I, I, I do. I'm always kind of prepared, but then I'm always surprised, you know? Yeah, instant. You buy the train ticket instantly. And you buy the train. You're on the train within five minutes. and you know. I know. I, I have to get a train to Hangzhou um, next week <laughs> from Beijing the week after, I think. And um, these people have invited me to Hangzhou, a university, to talk there. And um, so I said... Uh, what do you you can send the ticket to my address in Beijing this is it they go oh no don't worry you can just go to the train station and it'll be all electronically yeah. organized I'm like really yeah. oh my god <laughs> I'm yeah. still surprised yeah. you know but it is extraordinary I mean 
you know, in a lifetime of several decades. Yeah. I mean, here we forget too, you know, that the world pre-email was oh, yeah. only a few years ago and we can't imagine how we, how we live. I used but to send my stories by telex. Nobody even knows what that is anymore. Yeah. And in China, it was that to, it's that to the nth degree, yeah. going from, you know, not being able to make a phone call People, ordinary people. We chatting, you know, 24 7. Exactly. I mean, people Um, used to have uh, neighborhood phones, mm -hmm. and you had to call the neighborhood phone, and some old man would answer and then slowly walk down and then pick up his megaphone and basically say, So and so, you know, and then the person would hear it on their 11th floor thing, and they'd have to walk down the stairs, and, you know, it was. So can you and I was trying yeah, to reconstruct in detail the other day exactly what happened around June 4 in 1989. How, still how doing communication, that. We used to be autistic with this. Well, I've never got over yeah, it. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but how exactly communication happened? Because there, were, it, there was no email and there were no phones. <coughs> I know. Um, there was fax um, for international communication. Um, there were a few phones. But to, to actually get a message to someone on the other side of the city, it was easier to drive there yeah. um, than to try to call. Um, so that is important part of the mix because while we know that you know CNN was there and it was being broadcast to the world, at the same time half the people in the city had no idea what was going on except through rumour, and rumour is very, very powerful in, in that situation. I mean, I remember, I've got a friend here, um, Ashien, who, um, <laughs> and Mali, who I've known since uh, the early 80s, and um, we used to just, they were, how, how far away were you? You were like a 40-minute bike ride or something, and we just think nothing of it, just hop on the bike and see if you're home. Yeah. You know, that was... <laughs> yeah. And yet, for all that change, there are other things that don't seem any different. Yeah. In the way how we think about it, and and this story that this paragraph that um, this you know this is um, built around something that did happen. Um, a group of foreign experts were um, in a small town in Shandong province on a long weekend when Chernobyl happened. So it's it's set quite a long time ago, and some of them were Europeans, and they had no way of knowing what had happened, and they're trying to find out, but make, making the phone call. Even pulling strings to make the phone call was incredibly difficult, and things you know being denied on all sides. Um, so it's just a reminder um, of that time. So there was a telephone downstairs at the reception desk of the guest house. You could call through to a local operator, who would then attempt to make further connections. The receptionist happily filled in a form requesting two long-distance calls to Sweden and asked the women to pay a deposit against the cost. He wrote out receipts in triplicate. It was early morning in Sweden. There would certainly be someone there to answer the phone and explain what was happening, the women said. But they must wait, the receptionist replied. There was only one line to the local operator. The lines from there to the provincial capital were busy. The lines from the provincial capital to Beijing were overloaded. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think probably here we can open up to questions. It's kind of a nice note to to end this part of the conversation. um, Raise your hand if you have a question. Yes, Will. I just wanted to do your uh, view on. I'll repeat the question. The temporality of of. of foreigners in in China, I mean, whether that's also something that that comes as part and parcel of that strangeness, and also of the of that kind of um, excitement of that strangeness, of that kind of that sense of temporality and, and impermanence. Yeah, well, if I, if I get the question, did you all hear the question about the temporality of foreigners in China? It's a very interesting question. I guess it can be interpreted in various ways. Um, but one of them is that, um, you know, every foreigner goes to China for a first time at some point. Um, so that's a big deal um, for that person. They're stepping into something. 
Um, and so there's a timeline from that point on. And that China they're stepping into is, is their China. It's the China of that time. Um, and that's how they come to understand it. Um, and so they won't know what things were like 10 years earlier. Um, and they won't know what things will be like in 10 years time unless they stay there um, all that time. So there's, you know, there's that kind of personal timeline um, which I think is a is a very powerful one, and you know I've just said, and Linda's the same. We haven't got over 1989, and in our personal <laughs> timeline, that will always be quite a big marker. Um, to the point you can imagine, you know, in future, still rabbiting on about it, and you know, <laughs> people saying, "Well, what's wrong with them?" Um, for China too, there have always been foreigners, um, or for many centuries, um, and they've always written their accounts and. You know, they've always been accounts of a certain kind of strangeness. Um, and that's repeated and repeated. Um, and I think as a, you know, as a foreigner going into that, you're also conscious of that, that you're doing what other people have done before you. And you either kind of enjoy treading in those footsteps or you want to kind of break away from the familiar tropes and do something different, which, which we you know, all try to do. Um, I was just going to add that, a, just yeah. add to what Nick was saying that you know it's Marco Polo sort of laid down a template about how you write about China, the marvels, the wonders, and so on. A template which you could say some of the Marxists, the fellow travelers, the the, the, the people like Han Su Yin and so on, um, Ross Terrell, who went to China and, and would write about the marvels of communism. So there are these these templates that have been laid down and in a sense people are reenacting. But I really like what you just said about China begins when you get there. Because I actually, many years ago, I was writing a review of a, an Australian China correspondence book on China. And I'll leave his name out of this discussion for the moment because he probably <laughs> he might even be sitting here. Um, anyway, he was furious with my review because I said that he suffered from that, that China began when he arrived and he had no sense of the history and he couldn't put things in context. And um, yeah, I, I got, you know, I got whiplash from that. Uh, <laughs> From you know what came from him as a result of that thing, but it's something that if you look at books on China by particularly say foreign correspondents, there is a sense that that's when China begins when they arrive. So if they begin at democracy, if they arrive during democracy wall, that's when it begins. If they've been there since the Cultural Revolution, that's when it begins, and so on. It's very very interesting. It's not true of all people who write books on China, thank goodness, but it is a certain phenomenon. Another question. Yes, Sally. Um, I was wondering, um, could you comment on, um, in your work in Adelaide and creative writing, whether you're noticing any change in the number of people who are writing about Asia, you know, writing about Asian, you know, Australians writing Asia-related fiction? Um, yes, it's a question. I teach creative writing at the University of Adelaide. Uh, I teach a lot of PhD students in particular who are writing novels, uh, writing book-length work. Um, and Sally's asking, have I noticed a change in the number of people writing about Australia and Asia? Um, I've, I've become sort of the go-to person to examine a lot of these theses from other universities as well. So I'm quite a good person to ask and I can confirm that there are quite a few um, different kinds of things, some very experimental. I mean, there was a brilliant work from the University of Wollongong about Singapore, um, for example, contemporary Singapore um, a couple of years ago. Um, I think um, there's some um, of my current students, one man is writing a book about the Korean War, um, and he's he's lived in Korea uh, for quite a while, and that that is something um, that seems quite unusual um, as a subject that he's found, and he's quite. Is that because it's historical? 
Um, Do most people choose contemporary approaches to Asia that you've seen? Or? This is very historically informed. Um, is that unusual? That's unusual, yeah. Or else they, if it's historical, it may be more of a kind of fantasy historical, a kind of 19th century, um, kind of toing and froing kind of novel. Um, yes, there's not much that is informed in a contemporary way. I guess that's a fair comment. I mean, there, there's been a verse novel set in Tokyo, I can think of, Contemporary Tokyo, which was published by Penguin and, you know, Tim Sinclair, a very nice book. Um, What's it called? I think it's called Nine, Nine Hours, either Nine Hours or Nine Days. <laughs> <laughs> he was there for longer than that, but he, he, he taught English there, which is a bit of a... Um, David Mitchell, you know, the famous British uh, writer, taught English in Japan. So that's a bit of a pathway. Um, I think people are still slightly scared, uh, apprehensive of writing about um, any foreign country, but particularly a a country with um, different ethnicity, um, radically different language, different culture. Um, there's a whole kind of theoretical issue about how you represent the other, um, which has crippled um, many writers. Um, but also, in recent years, we've seen um, the growth of, say, AsiaLink fellowships, which allow not just writers, but artists um, of all different sorts, including writers, um, to go to a place in Asia and um, go there with a project. And so you have some writers who say, go to Vietnam for the purpose of writing something about Vietnam and so on. And that that probably feeds into this a little bit. And the other thing is um, Michelle Garneau, um, who's the restaurateur who, who um, she's got M on the Bund and capital M in, in, in China. Um, she uh, sponsors uh, a literary fellowship. Well, there's two. One is um, in China and one is in India. But when you apply, um, one is in Shanghai, and it's very specific. You're not to use Shanghai, for example, or the in, or the place in India, which is outside of Bangalore, as a stepping stone for travel all over the place. You bring a project. There's a reason that you're writing in Shanghai. So it's it's very much about both the Asia Link and the M fellowships are very much about encouraging people to to use Asia as an inspiration or as a, mm. a, a place for creating mm. art and literature. Last year I took a group of undergraduate creative writing students to Beijing for a three-week intensive um, in July called Writing China in Country and uh, none of them had been there before um, <laughs> so it was pretty crazy um, but they wrote good stuff, um, and so I'm doing it again this coming um, July due to public demand. Um, and, you know, I, I regard that as very worthwhile. Um, but I would, st- I would say, you know, and I've been working in this field for, for yonks, you know, cultural exchange between Australia and China, as has Linda. and. The familiarity is still not there. The, the mix of, um, well, enough curiosity, enough information and understanding to become familiar, um, and then with what then happens back in Australia with all that is not really there. And, and to add another post, uh, to add a postscript about publishing, um, when I wrote my. Um, I can't remember which novel, fifth, I think, um, which was based uh, in Villawood Detention Centre, and I was absolutely passionate about this novel. Um, Publishers were really scared of touching the the subject of refugees. They said there was no market for it. But what was very interesting is one of the publishers who really did want to publish it liked it, but had to get it past the marketing people who now control everything in publishing. (laughs) She said, what else do you have up your sleeve? And I said, well, I'm thinking of doing a novel set in China, George Morrison, this became A Most Immoral Woman. Um, And she was like, that's great. We want a two book proposal and I can get it past, you know, and and that's what happened. It became a two book thing. And then of course the publisher's like, "What, what, what are your next projects? 
we hope they have to do with China, and um, The Empress Lover, and now I'm working on another one. But it's really interesting from the publisher's standpoint, they see it as, if it, if it can work successfully, I'm sure they don't want to just do it randomly, but if it can work successfully, then I think they see it as a really great thing, mm. for whatever reason they have. Mm. Mm. Do the people you took to China, do they understand Chinese or not? No. They're English language creative writing students. So and it's a fairly external and um, they had superficial view of China. They well, yes, it's a short time, but they every morning had for three hours, for twelve days in a row, except for weekends, lectures on the history of modern and contemporary Chinese literature. Um, they had writing workshops in the afternoons. They'd never sat through a three-hour lecture, most of these <laughs> kids, and they had to kind of drink Coke and eat candy and everything just to kind of deal with it, particularly since they'd been out all night at bars and things. Um, but they heard about Lu Xun and they heard about, uh, you know, Zhang Ai Ling, and they heard these people they'd never heard of before and actually got quite interested in this whole literature that they knew nothing of. And in some of their writing, they were kind of taking up elements of that um, and telling those stories in their own words, um, which is very much what I'm about as well, um, trying to set up a context for some kind of dialogue or, or, or transfer. Um. Yes, a question. Is it all one way? Is it all one way? No. Are it's seeing any interaction? Are there young Chinese writers? Yes. There are young... Yeah. Yes, yeah. there are young cheap Chinese writers who come to Australia. Um, uh, there's been, since we've opened, since there's been that kind of, because don't forget, until the mid-80s, it was almost impossible to get yeah. a passport out unless you had a scholarship, um, you know. So it wasn't necessarily a really free exchange. But um, from the time young Chinese uh, or middle-aged Chinese, I suppose, writers began coming here. Um, there's been books, some of them <laughs> quite abysmal, um, some of them, you know, better, and some of them, I suppose, good. I haven't seen the really good ones, mm -hmm. but um, they probably do exist. I just haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, about Australia or stories set in Australia. Yes, there's um, from one of the ones I examined, one of the other ones, by a woman called Isabel Lee. This was a, she was at UTS in Sydney, and she's starting to publish those stories. It was a, a sequence of stories now in literary magazines. So, it, you know, some of them are in the best Australian stories of last year or the year oh, before, great. and you can see those. Um, and, you know, that that's a very important contribution. I mean, she's had a rather roundabout, it hasn't been that she just came from China to Australia and now is writing a book. Um, she's lived in Singapore, she's lived in the UK, um, she's studied hard and she's had all kinds of experience and it's all kind of distilled um, into, this, into these stories. I mean, I don't know that we have a, um, a Nam Lee yet. I don't, you know, I don't know, you know, who I'm sure you're familiar with the boat and, and Nam Lee. Mm. I don't know that we have a hard, we don't have a Hajin, mm. um, a Lee Yuan. Um, or Daisijie, who's in France, uh, Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress. But, I mean, we hope. <laughs> we will. Um, we might have time for one more question. Yes. Uh, this question for both Nick and Linda. I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on your own experiences of, of strangeness in China. Did you celebrate it, accept it, reject it? All three at the same time. Did this change over time? Um, so that's really that. Do you want to answer first, or should I? Um, I'm thinking about really what what strangeness means in this context. Um, uh, yeah, you go. Okay, I think all three, and it has changed over time. I think um, when I first got to China, when I first got to Taiwan, which is where I first went, um, I wanted to be Chinese. I was always so disappointed when people noticed that I wasn't. <laughs> and um, I wanted to erase my strangeness. And then I kind of came to terms with my strangeness. And I don't know that I actually celebrate my strangeness, but I accept my strangeness now, and sometimes I play on my strangeness. 
Um, but then there's still times when, you know, you're sitting with people who you've known and forever or, or good new friends or whatever, and you're all talking in Chinese and you're having such a great time. And somebody, the waiter or maybe one of their friends who's at the table who you've never met before, can't stop saying things like, wow, you can use chopsticks, you know. Gee, your Chinese is really good. And you just, you just, you know, you just get to the point where it's like, really? Is that all you can say at this point? You know, and so it is a really complex relationship that you have. You are strange. You look, I look strange. I used to dye my hair black in my Chinese days. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah, I'm strange. So it's a, sometimes you, I just want to reject it just because I'm with friends. I'm not with Chinese people. I'm with friends, you know, it's not, and, and you just feel so frustrated. And then sometimes, <coughs> You just accept it, you know, you know that you're looking really weird in context and that's all it is. Yeah. 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 Because I well, I think the word strange, it can refer to simply being foreign, you know, looking different. And that's a fact, but it's something that you can live with. And then there's the other strange being weird, uh, which is something you can choose to embrace or not <laughs> in the situation. Um, and well, an observation would be that the people who've been there longer and longer become weirder and weirder. <laughs> <laughs> so whether that's something that is thrust upon them or that they're embracing, hard to know. But um, I mean, you can embrace it in the sense that, or celebrate it in the sense, you know, like when Wang Shuo, the novelist, re redid his kit, he, he had a, you know, what do you call it, um, renovate, he renovated, and he got um, a new kitchen with a western stove, and he asked me to come over and make a western meal, <laughs> and I did, it was very funny, I had to bring all this stuff from Australia, like focaccia, <laughs> and olive oil, because uh, that was before they, you could get that in China, and I made this western meal, and everybody ate it, and then they went, mm, not bad, but, and they didn't have any idea that this was a joke cliche in the West, they said, not bad, but it's like half an hour later, you're hungry again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think... It's probably a wrap. Yeah, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, yeah. Nick. Thank you so much. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au. And if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe.